Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So we're at Scratch Labs in Boulder, Colorado. I don't want to call this over-the-top cycling. We're not snowbound. We're, we're sitting at a t- We're over the table. We're over the table tonight. Yeah, we're going to be talking about food and cooking and spending time with our friends and our family and what that all means to us. New book. We're here with Alan Lim. Again, it's Scratch Labs. Great to visit with you, Alan. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, uh, it's been really interesting for me to discuss Feed Zone when that came out. Uh, You came out with Feed Zone Portables. Both very, really athletic-oriented. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They were about athletic performance, and they were a lot about the kind of performance experiences that I had when I was coaching on the Pro Tour. So your motivation for the new book, which is not quite so athletically oriented. That's right. You know, the, But at the same time, it is. I mean, I, it is. It, I mean, it is because it's born... Um, from the same experience that that I wrote all the other books with Bijou with, you know, um, except that I kind of felt when we wrote the Feed Zone uh, cookbook original and portables, people were more interested in the whole idea of, well, how much do I need to eat? How many calories am I burning? You know, carbohydrate, protein, fat, a more traditional kind of look at sports nutrition, a more reduced uh, look at sports nutrition. But the reality, and we, we talked about this in the original Feed Zone cookbook, was that you know the dinner table was very much about building family, building team. It was very much about the kind of human aspect of what brought us together that was really most important. But that wasn't stuff that I really kind of talked about or, or touched upon. It wasn't something that I even really kind of understood. I intuitively knew that it was important for us to sit together and eat together but it wasn't until um, I had the experience of, you know, working here at Scratch and helping to build this company that I realized how important that community was and how important it was for us not to eat alone but to eat together. And I started realizing or seeing in the world of sports nutrition, even with the Feed Zone cookbooks, that athletes got so into kind of the dogma of a type of diet or the idea of um, what we were talking about, that they would often eat to the exclusion of their friends and their family if their friends and their family didn't feel the same. Um, That's not what we wanted, and we didn't want to perpetuate the idea that just because you have an athletic goal that you can't sit at the dinner table with somebody who doesn't. Right, that eating for your health and well-being is no different than eating for athletic performance. Which interesting topic, especially around the holidays. That's right. That's I mean, right. Uh, I'm having eggnog. 
can I share it with Alan, who is training for whatever upcoming event there that's is? That's right. That's right. That's right. Do I want to tempt you by even inviting you over and being there because I've got so many foods that aren't good for you? Yeah, a- absolutely. And I think, you know, the bottom line is it comes down to this, that um, I've come to realize that there is no such thing as a healthy or unhealthy food, just healthy and unhealthy behaviors, right? And that we often blame um, industry or a type of product or a food for all of our kind of uh, health problems. But the nature of it is, is that you still as an individual make a choice to put that in your mouth, right? And so, yeah, we can be social and we can commune together and we can eat together, um, but we can still practice some moderation. We can still practice, you know, taking care of ourselves in the meantime, uh, we don't have to go to extremes. And I think that ultimately this book, Feed Zone Table, is all about practicing this idea that we call nutritional pragmatism, right, as opposed to mm-hmm. nutritional extremism, which is what I see a lot in the world of sports. And I think of a couple of athletes come to mind really quick, Timmy Duggan, Ian Boswell. They love to cook. They love to cook. They love to eat. Yeah. Do they share that food? I hope so. (laughs) Because they're very good cooks as well. Yeah, I hope so. And that's, you know, what we kind of always encouraged the athletes that I worked with to do. Um, One of the things that I realized when I first, you know, went over to Europe coaching all of these really young kids who had just come off the TIAF squad and were now emerging into the slipstream program, which would turn later into the Garmin program, was that there was a lot of loneliness and isolation living in Europe. And even though most of us lived in Girona and had roommates um, we weren't often sharing dinner together. And when we made the effort to do so, the team became stronger, and I think the athletes felt less lonely. We did. Yeah. So it was something that I tried to encourage quite often. Um, the, the thing that would always kind of like annoy me is if there were a group of athletes living together and they started each cooking their own meal, <laughs> right? And that happens all the time. You see, you know, these kind of cycling houses or you see these, you know, um, situations where athletes are together and they're on their own program. And, you know, that's certainly fine from the perspective that everyone's an individual and everyone needs to take care of themselves. But I think that there needs to be some balance point, right? Um, Taking the time to cook together not only saves you money, not only saves you time, but it's way more enjoyable. And I think that generally speaking, we make better choices when we eat with others. Um, we tend to select better foods, right? So you mm-hmm. talked earlier about having the temptation of going to a party and having all these bad foods around. Well, I think that uh, the opposite is actually more true, that what tends to happen around a dinner table is that dinner tables are, are what some scientists call socially normative. Um, what happens is if you tend to be, say, overweight and you tend to eat too much by yourself, when you eat at a dinner table with others, you tend to eat less. If you, say, have an eating disorder and you tend to not eat at all and you're suffering from anorexia, well, if you're at a dinner table with others, you're probably going to eat a lot more than you normally do, right? And so the table is this normative place where we kind of come back to the rule of, 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 of that little mini society or tribe. Right. Now, it's interesting you're saying the athletes, the American athletes go to Europe tend to isolate. Yeah. Whereas the few times I've been to Europe, a meal is more of an experience. That's right. That's right. And it takes a nice amount of time. That's I mean, right. 
Yeah. And is that what you're encouraging? That's what we're encouraging. And that was something that we all learned living in Europe and working in Europe was that over time we started to adopt this European mentality. You know, most of the American cyclists are based in a town called Girona, Spain. Uh, it's in the Catalonia region, northern region of uh, Spain along the Mediterranean coast, about an hour north of Barcelona. It's an incredible region. Um, just like France, there is a diet health paradox in the Girona region, meaning that if you look at the amount of fat and saturated fat consumed in that population relative to the amount of heart disease, there's an extraordinarily low rate of heart disease, but an extraordinarily high <laughs> consumption of what we might consider to be bad for you foods, foods that are laden with fat, butter, sugar, right? Um, these diet health paradoxes are really, really intriguing. You see this in France as well. France has the second lowest rate of heart disease in the developed world, yet they consume uh, on average twice the amount of total fat and twice the amount of saturated fat as the average American. Um, and as Americans, we have a very, very high rate of cardiovascular disease. Now, I don't really want to get into athletes right here. Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> but European athletes must eat differently than American athletes, or is that athletic diet more universal? Uh, my experience is that it's more universal in the team environment, that in the team environment, there's this kind of old school uh, dogma that I saw with a lot of Euro coaches where they wanted their athletes to suffer all the time. And so you'd come down for a breakfast and it'd be white bread, butter, and a bunch of sprinkles, right? Um, it wasn't exactly like the best food uh, that, that their culture or community had to offer. Um, it was kind of a bummer, you know. Um, not all of it translates, you know, from the dinner table to the bicycle. And that was stuff that, that you know, we tried to develop a different philosophy with respect to, you know, the portables book and what these athletes could eat while they were on the bike. Uh, this was what we tried to bring to, you know, the recovery foods and the feed zone cookbook. It was this idea that, hey, why not try to adopt this culture of really great, fresh, whole foods all the time? Um, you know, in the sport of cycling, the the common practice when I first came on board was that when guys got done with a uh, long day at the Tour de France, for example, they'd have this baguette of bread with, you know, some sort of deli meat inside and maybe a protein recovery shake, right? Um, not exactly either appetizing or that great for you. Um, you know, I started bringing rice cookers on the bus and, you know, making omelets and eggs and trying to encourage more fresh food, even though it was still, say, carbohydrate heavy with a little bit of protein, et cetera. But it was just about that notion of, you know, let's not just give these guys a sloppily made sandwich. Let's give some these, these, these riders, you know, something that, that is hot and made with some care. And I was fortunate enough to be along on the 2013 Amgen Tour of California with you guys and watching you cook yeah. and put these meals together for the, the cyclists, and they're so appreciated. Yeah, yeah. And that appreciation, you know, is what fuels us to see them kind of light up and be happy and engaged. Uh, it changes the whole entire dynamic of a meal, right? Instead of guys just kind of sitting there stuffing their faces, eating because it's their job, they're now sharing stories about the day. They are enjoying themselves. They're laughing. They're telling jokes. Um, that's, you know, for me, why I was so attracted to the world of cycling. It was because of that community. It was that sense of belonging. 
Um, so it's but a then bummer. You didn't see the community at the dinner table. Not it was initially. More isolation. Yeah. Not not initially, right? Okay. It, it took us a lot of time to to learn how to develop that and learn that that was actually something that was very important. It took a long time to realize that, you know, we didn't always have to hide behind our ambition. Um, I think that you know, there's this weird thing in sport where you have to be both selfish and you have to be selfless to be part of a team, right? You have to be selfish so that you can do everything that you need to do to be the best that you can be. And then you have to be selfless so that you can actually work for your team and, you know, be a team player. Uh, that balance is sometimes pretty hard to strike, you know? And when that selfishness extends, I think, to the dinner table, it may be glacier melt, but it's a sign of a much bigger problem. Now, what did you find with the feed zone and feed zone portables? There was so you actually had a big market with non-athletes with those books, isn't that correct? We we were very surprised that we ended up getting a very big market outside of just the cycling market, just outside of the sport market. That um, you know the books were were given to people who didn't necessarily have any athletic ambition because the recipes that Bijou writes are just phenomenal and they're easy and they're simple and they are and have always been very family oriented, right? Um, so for us, we found people using this book um, as a way to feed their families, to feed their friends, to teach their kids how to cook. Uh, we got a lot of notes from, you know, kids who were, you know, just old enough to begin learning how to use a kitchen knife who were cooking out of our cookbook. And for Bijou and I, that was really, really inspiring. Well, your chicken fried rice, which is excellent. I, didn't you make that in third grade for your class? Yeah, <laughs> I, had, I had actually. So this is a family recipe. You know, I mean, I think my parents would consider this to be kind of very common food and very kind of cheap food, not exactly, you know, sophisticated or, uh, you know, n nutritionally the best for you, but Maybe, it's but great it in a bind. <laughs> yeah, and, and I so loved my parents' fried rice when I was a kid that I actually had them make their fried rice so that I could bring it to show and tell in the third grade. So that's that was my show and tell. My my show and tell back then was our family's chicken fried rice and how to make it and how to put it together. Uh, little did I know that many, many years later, after the third grade, I would be recompiling that recipe for others. Now, I've got to say, I mean, the recipes are very simple. I love to bake. I'm not a great cook, but those recipes are always a hit. Yeah. And we generally will use the Feed Zone uh, cookbook when we have guests over because the food is good. It's simple. Yeah. And I, people really appreciate it. Yeah. It strikes, and you know you're giving them something healthy. That's right. It, it strikes a great balance of, um, you know, being something that all home cooks can do, right? Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I talk to Bijou about this all the time, and Bijou has an extremely humble approach about, about food. And whenever anyone asks Bijou what he does for a living, he just tells them that he's a cook. And it's really interesting because I've seen him have this conversation with people all the time. And when he tells them that, he, that he's just a cook, they just totally get disinterested in the conversation, right? Versus if he were to tell people, you know, I'm a chef, they become very uh, interested. They, they think it's really romantic. They think it's really interesting. But for Bijou, what he always tells me is that it's a way to test people, right? If they don't appreciate that he's just a cook and that he sees himself as just a cook, then he doesn't really want to talk to him, right? Um, he doesn't need the Palmares or the, you know, fancy titles. And uh, for me, I've always been inspired about that 
aspect of how Bijou approaches food, and it definitely reflects in the book. So with the feed zone table, it, are the portions different? How, how does it differ from, from the feed zone cookbook? Uh, the major book. The, yeah, <laughs> exactly. The major difference is that it uh, takes the architecture of how do you feed a lot of people at one time, right? Okay. Um, how do you set a table so that everybody has their own plate and can feed themselves from what's brought to the table rather than creating a meal that, is, that you end up plating, right, or mm-hmm. a dish that you end up plating as the meal. It's about the components of meals and the kind of main courses of the dinner, the, 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 the dinner. Um, you know, the difference in how Bijou and I were raised culturally uh, Bijou's Indian, I'm Chinese. It's kind of a, you know, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle kind of thing. Uh, we always ate, quote unquote, family style, where everything on the table was shared. You know, so I'll give you an example of this. Um, you know, you go to a McDonald's here in America, and everybody orders their own meal. Right? So even okay. if you're with a big group of friends, you know, one guy gets the filet fish and the French fries and gets a soda or whatever, and someone gets you know, a Big Mac and fries and maybe an apple pie and whatever, right? But you go back to the table and you sit and everybody has their own meal. Mm-hmm. Well, in Japan, which, by the way, has the lowest rate of heart disease in the developed world, um, Going to McDonald's is not this individual thing. It's actually a, a event where literally groups of friends uh, between generations will will go and share food. And so when they order at McDonald's, they order you know maybe a burger or two, maybe another sandwich, you know a few fries, maybe one soda. And they literally bring it to the table and they all share family style where, you know, they'll take a bite of a burger and put it in the middle and someone will take another bite of that burger and the fries will be spilled out in the center of the table where, you know, they might drink from one soda and share that soda between four people. Um, It's a very convivial, you know, joyful, different way of having food with one another. Um, So even though we see... uh, you know, fast food here in America as this kind of like social enemy, this kind of urban crisis, mm-hmm. right? Um, in Japan, fast food isn't that at all, even though they might be similar products. You have got me so motivated now to bring home McDonald's to my family and go, <laughs> here's what we're doing tonight. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, that's a bit extreme, obviously. Yeah, but, but it I would think be fun. <laughs> it would be fun. And, and I think I think maybe the important lesson there is it's not what you eat, it's how you eat, right? And that as Americans, as scientists even, you know, I was taught this dogma of reducing everything down into basic parts or elements and making sure those parts and elements fit whatever dogma or construct that we were after. So the right amount of carbohydrate, the right amount of protein, the right amount of fiber, uh, what fit this person with this disease, what fit this person with this athletic goal, right? It was highly individualistic. Um, We spend so much time thinking about what the food is that we forget about who or how, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that who or how have as much of an influence on our own health as the food that we're ingesting, right? So maybe you do bring home that McDonald's and you share it with your family. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, hopefully it was enough to feed you, but now you're sharing it with three other people and you're all eating a lot less. Maybe you're now having a better time with one another. Maybe you're laughing. Maybe you're cutting through the loneliness or the isolation of people off in their own little spaces, eating their own little nuggets of whatever. It's hard for me to keep a straight face right now because I'm trying to picture the look on my wife's face. That's right. That's when right. germ folk George put in that's right. puts his bird. That's right. You but know? That's why I want to try yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, look, plenty of people go to bars late at night and rando make out with all sorts of people. You might as well just, you know, stick your hand in there and grab some fries. Now, I've got a question. I was at a, a big lunch today. Yeah. And, um, there was some, a big plate of cookies for dessert. Yeah. And uh, someone said, oh, you've got to go try this. And, yeah. of course, someone said, well, I can't because I'm gluten-free. That's right. So what do you do then when you are making a big meal for a lot of people? And there are those people that have um, their own special diets. Yeah. You know, first, it's not your responsibility. I mean, people have to look out for themselves. So if they can't eat your food, hopefully the company is worth it in and of itself. And that's kind of become my attitude is that, you know, as much as I try to accommodate uh, all the different kind of dietary restrictions and needs of my own friends and family, I also realize that, you know, if someone goes hungry, it's not the end of the world, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We have plenty of calories in our (laughs) surrounding our our gut that we're going to be just fine. And I've kind of taken the emphasis off the food and put the emphasis in that situation on the people and the company and, you know, doing what I can to, to provide food for that person. Um, I think there's so much stress around the right kind of food and fancy food and the look and the plating and all this other stuff that we get so stressed out that we don't even throw dinner parties anymore, right? Um, yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that we do have to be pragmatic about it. Um, if that person is important enough to you um, or if the issue is daunting enough, then make adjustments. But they don't have to be extraordinary. They don't have to be fancy. They can be simple. They can be pragmatic. And you can still have a great meal. Um, obviously, a lot of people have very uh, uh, you know, important critical allergies. Uh, Bijou, for example, is allergic to uh, shellfish. And I've seen him, you know, get contaminated food a lot of the, of the time and just like break out and, you know, just go south. Uh, Taylor Finney, who uh, we share a lot of meals with, is allergic to avocados. And so, really? yeah, and I've seen situations where he's accidentally eaten avocado and just been out for the rest of the, you know, the day or evening or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're real. Um, you know, if, if you have those restrictions or, or – you know, dietary needs, special dietary needs, it's really important that you just tell whoever's hosting you. 
and you know yeah. you you help people out, right? Otherwise, it's a free for all, you know. Now, I don't know. I'm cavalier about that answer, but you yeah, know, but it, yeah, it's more common than it, it is uncommon, I guess. You have an incredibly busy schedule. What was it? What was the motivating? What was the driving force behind you writing another book? I mean, that is a project. Yeah. Um, I love to self-loathe mostly, you know, okay. like those dark places. <laughs> that was a big motivator. Um, it was an itch. It literally, I mean, not to be cliche, no pun intended, but I had to scratch it, right? Um, and it sucked. It sucked having this idea um, about food, about how I saw people eating. And I didn't have an easy time articulating these ideas. I didn't have an easy time um, finding the words to express myself. All I had was an intuition when I first started this book. I had an idea, right? And the most difficult part about writing this uh, cookbook was that because um, it's not something that people often talk about because there's not a lot of hard science there, mm -hmm. it was really, really difficult to convince even myself that this was an issue worthy of so much time and energy. But over the, you know, year or so that, that Bijan and I spent writing this book, the, the more conversations, the more literature I read, the more, you know, investigation research, the, 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 the better the idea started to manifest itself, right? Um, it it kind of came together by itself towards the end, even though we had to push really, really hard to find you know the right the right way to express ourselves and the what we really wanted to express was this idea you know, maybe from childhood that you know you'd have these family dinners and there'd be so much laughter and so much joy around that and that maybe there was something missing in our own lives that we didn't have that so much anymore and you know maybe this book in some ways was a nostalgia for that and a way to bring that back into our own lives right um, so, you know, in the midst of this, I started throwing a lot more dinner parties than I have ever thrown in my really? entire life. And as part of my research and note-taking, I started keeping this big diary and, and spreadsheet on Excel of every person I had a meal with, what happened, what we ate, what we talked about, what the interaction was like. And it was really incredible to go back and look at your life based upon your shared meals, based upon the pockets of time when I wasn't eating with others versus those times when I was eating with others and how different my mood state or my own kind of physical or mental performance was. But this is actually making me a little sad. I was thinking about, uh, you know, is, is this an American cultural thing? But I, I look at, say, a Thanksgiving dinner where it really becomes just a huge stress that's to right. get that meal made, and That's then right. there, you've got all these people coming over. And That's it's, right. It sucks. There's not the the joy, the verb it's, there. It's not, it's not spontaneous, right? And it's not just natural, and there's no structure around that in our culture. And I think that what's happened is that we have developed into a technocentric society, America, right? A lot of Western culture. Um, a technocentric society is one where uh, culture is really developed or uh, built around technology and evolution. And so the great thing about America is that we are innovators. We're pioneers. We constantly recreate and invent culture. You know, um, A lot of the cultural kind of uh, behavior that I 
for example, practice, were probably passed on to me, not by my elders, but by some 24-year-old kid who could program, right? Um, you contrast that with the opposite of a technocentric society or culture, which is an ethnocentric society, uh, one where uh, tradition is inherited from elders, one where there is kind of a traditional way of doing things. So, for example, in America, you have Amish cultures that are very ethnocentric. They've been eating and doing the same thing for generations, right? Um, on the other side, you have software engineers in San Francisco, I'm stereotyping, sorry, San Francisco, who literally are inventing ways of not having to eat, right? Like developing, you know, prepackaged uh, soy-based drinks so that they can have more time, you know, coding software. Um, there has to be a balance. Uh, we certainly have a lot of our own kind of inherited culture in the United States, but part of that is not the daily practice of commensality. Commensality is the act of eating with one another. Um, the French, however, are very commensal. They eat nearly all of their meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner with others. Together. Together, yeah. Um, the Japanese also are very commensal. And I think that it's looking at these diet health paradoxes and these very commensal societies that have uh, retain some of their ethnocentric behavior around food that uh, I'm most inspired because they're ultimately the healthiest societies out there. Now, working with others, being with others, how have you and Bijou been able to collaborate on three major projects of Feed Zone, Feed Zone Portables, Feed Zone Table? I mean, and they're all very well done. There never seems to be friction there that we can see. <laughs> yeah, we're like an old married couple. You know, okay. <laughs> we get we get through with a lot of swearing and a lot of curse words. Uh, we're very fluent in that language. <laughs> How do you break up the the uh, the work that goes into it? Is he in charge of the the recipes? No, uh, you know, I, I think that all the credit there really goes to Renee Jardine and the the crew at VeloPress. Um, they're the ones who manage us, who take care of us, who, you know, keep us on task, who tell us what we need to do. If Bijou were left to our druthers, we'd basically just be hanging out drinking tequila all night. Oh, okay. You know? <laughs> so well, we wouldn't get anything done. Uh, Renee, who was, our, who was our primary editor on the book, is phenomenal. Like, there's no one else I've ever met who is so good at getting Bijou and I to task. And Bijou and I talk about it all the time. We, you know, on some level, we didn't write this book for ourselves. We wrote this book for Renee. Uh, we wrote this book not to disappoint her. We wrote this book because, you know, we want uh, the people who support us to succeed as much as we want success for ourselves. And so this book never felt like something that we were trying to accomplish for ourselves outside of maybe the, 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 the sense of nostalgia that I wanted to recapture mm -hmm. um, from my own childhood. It was about, you know, hey, I, I, I wanted to do this for Beige. I wanted to do this for the gang at Bella Press. I wanted to do this for my team here at Scratch Labs who believe in this philosophy of food, right? Um, it, it was uh, very much and has always been, I think, in our relationship, been about helping one another out rather than trying to bolster ourselves. Now, are the recipes similar to the Feed Zone cookbook, where they are simple, they're healthy, real food, just different portions? How? Absolutely. They're very, okay. very similar. Um, 
You know, I think the, the portion sizes are naturally bigger. Um, they're, they're recipes and they're meals that are designed to be shared. Oh, they are? Yeah. Okay. Right? So that's the key point there. They're designed to be shared. They're, these are not meals that that you make one evening and you're going to be hard, you know, you're going to eat by yourself. Uh, you're going to be eating that same meal for the whole rest of the week if you do that. If you do. Right? <laughs> so, um, you know, in a, in a perfect situation, these are uh, dinners that are built around a table of four to six. Okay. Right? Um, so that's the basic architecture. And ultimately, cooking that way saves time. It saves money. It's, it's easier to do. And what that means is that you've got to share your food, right? Um, we spend so much money on food because we're buying prepackaged, pre-made food that serve one person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and while we don't have a perfect answer for how you get people around the dinner table, maybe these recipes will be part of the spark that result in someone picking up the phone and saying, hey, look, I'm making a dinner tonight. It's more than I can eat. Would you like to come over? And maybe people start paying that forward so that if you make a meal for someone on some random Sunday, you might get an invitation for the same on some random Wednesday. And that when you string it all together, maybe most of the nights out of the week, you're not eating by yourself, you know, um, you and your family. Who knows? I don't know. I mean, it's kind of funny that Bijou and I, two single men, wrote a book about family-style meals. But um, you entertain a lot. Uh, yes, but in so much, yeah, right no, I, I think, I think we have an open, we have, we have an open door policy, there you go. right? Cause I was going to say, active you know, social I'd life. say that if entertaining is me making grilled cheese sandwiches in my underwear, then that's, well, that'd be entertaining. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. We have an open door policy that, that if you're hungry, just come on over, we'll make something. You know, and that's my my attitude around food. It doesn't have to be fancy schmancy. It doesn't have to be a big to do. Um, but it's not a lesson that that I always knew intuitively. It was something that I've learned, um, you know, over the last several years. In fact, you know, one of those really big lessons was taught to me by Taylor Finney. Um, we were on a bike ride one evening, and. Uh, I told him that I put a roast in that that morning, and I asked him if he wanted to come over and share some of it with me. You know, it was pretty uh-huh. casual, and uh, he was like, "Yeah, awesome." Uh, you know, it was summertime, so we're rolling in around seven o'clock at night, and he says, "Hey, can I can I bring a friend over?" And I'm just like, "Yeah, whatever, bring whoever you want." And you know, thirty minutes later, he shows up at my house with like eight other people, <laughs> literally, like like I mean, families came over, right? And I freaked out. I mean, I was so stressed trying to put this dinner together and, like, get everyone at the table and, ah, and making an extra salad, cooking an extra food, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and then by the time everyone left and dinner was over, Taylor kind of chastised me. But he was like, dude, man, you were, like, so stressed out. You weren't even really at the dinner tonight, you know? Like, we didn't come over because, you know, we just wanted to eat your food. We wanted to hang out and enjoy your company. Like, you got to be more present to this you know, sort of stuff, which coming from, you know, a 25-year-old, you know, guy is like, holy cow, it kind of, you get some pause, you start to think about it. And I started realizing, yeah, you know, nobody really cares about the food. People just want to belong. Interesting you say that because 
I mean, it makes me think of having people over, making pizzas or whatever, and I'm always in the kitchen. Yeah. Not at the table and trying to socialize, but, you know, it's, I'm the one who cares about the food. Yeah. Because I want everybody to like what I've made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Sometimes you got to just let the boogers hang, man. Doing a good job of that right now. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, we're so self-conscious. Yeah. And we so want to impress people and, and... you know, people invite me over all the time. I'm like, what do you want me to bring? Doritos? Zima? You know? Like, what happened to the Doritos and Zima party? <laughs> That's like an age long gone. <laughs> <sighs> it was also interesting to me that you said at the beginning of our chat that this was very hard for you to articulate. It was. Yet you've done a very good job of articulating. That's because I spent a whole entire year self-loathing okay. <laughs> around the topic, right? <laughs> trying to understand myself and trying to, like, find the words. Like, use my big inside words, bring them outside. Uh, that was what this book was about for me, and it was it was tough, right? Because, you know, not all of it makes sense. Um, why, you know, that spirit... Um, that, that whatever humanity we have inside of ourselves wants to not only eat, but share what we eat. You know, in fact, humans are one of the only animals on the planet that actively shares food. The only other animal that has been observed to share their food outside of the context of nursing is the bonobo monkey, which is our closest genetic relative. Really? Right? Yeah. And yet... At the same time, ever since fire was invented, the act of sharing food with one another has been part of human civilization, right? Um, even the word participate, right, which is from, from the Latin pars capere, which means literally to share um, uh, a part of, the, of, of, a, of a capture, right, is something that we use in our own language derived from the sharing of food. Um, it's age old, right? And yet somehow in the last hundred years or so, uh, we've gone away from that in response to technology, in response to the advancement of, of our understanding of, 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 of diet. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that humans are adaptable and they're resilient. And while uh, very few of us die of starvation, many of us definitely die of loneliness, Alan, I've got so many more questions for you, but I can't follow what you just said with a question. That was sadly beautiful. It is sadly beautiful. <laughs> you know, maybe BJ and I just wrote this book because we spent a lot of time being lonely, pursuing our careers, pursuing ambition. But, you know, you, you realize after pounding your, your head against the wall for a long time that ambition is an easy thing to hide behind until you realize it's all you have. And we'd like to share a lot more with the world than just that ambition. So here's the table. Alan Lim, always a pleasure. And title of our show, Over the Table. That's right. That's good. From the Scratch Labs studios in Boulder, Colorado. Bon appetit, everyone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.